Hey everybody, Mike Dempsey here. It's NFL playoff time, and you can still win playing Underdog Fantasy by picking higher or lower on player stats at underdogfantasy.com. Sign up with promo code 1010XL, and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100. He's hacker. Talk about a fried egg. I lasted about five minutes out there. I said, to heck with this. I'll do this in the morning. And I don't have any inside information. The lady that did it, she got in there. I mean, she made it happen. And he doesn't shy away from opinion. And I do enjoy drinking cold beer at ballparks. So if that makes me a baseball fan, then I'm a diehard baseball fan. It's Hacker After Dark on 1010XL. And a very good Thursday evening to you, Jacksonville. It is Hacker After Dark, 1010XL, 92.5 FM with Dylan Denmark. The Hacker Ryan Green with you. Glad you are with us as we get closer to the weekend, which is always a good thing. Boy, college basketball really picking up. What a win for the Florida Gators last night. That felt like something. I don't know what it felt like, but it felt like something. Florida hasn't had a win like that on the road in a long time. So that was really good for Todd Golden and Gator basketball. The way it happened, tying the game with three seconds to go winning in Rupp Arena in overtime. Maybe that was the beginning of a nice little run here for the Gators, so that was nice to see. I'm pretty excited. My guy Paolo Bancaro of the Orlando Magic was named an NBA All-Star earlier this evening. Pretty fired up for that. So there's a lot to get into on that side of things. Obviously, a lot of football to get into as well. Got a great guest lineup, Cecil Shorts, former wide receiver for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He will join us in less than 20 minutes. We'll talk Jags with Cecil. We'll talk Josh Allen, Calvin Ridley, Trevor Lawrence as we get closer to the NFL offseason. We'll also talk about, obviously, Championship Sunday and a brief look ahead to Super Bowl 58. Also, Brad Spielberger, PFF, pro football focus. Brad is their salary cap guy. So I want to do a deep dive into the Jaguar offseason, contracts, extensions, guys that may be cut to save cap room. We'll talk with Brad Spielberger, the, Brad Spielberger, the PFF salary cap guy. That's basically what he is. He's the guy when it comes to salaries for pro football focus, and he comes up in about 35 or 40 minutes. Also in the 9 o'clock hour, Ian Cummings of Pro Football Network as we will talk a little draft, the Senior Bowl obviously going on out in Mobile, Alabama. So we got a lot to do. We are glad you are with us. Every night here on Hacker After Dark, we do kick it off with a big deal of the night and Dylan Denmark. Let's do that right now. Time now for the big deal of the night. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? It is a big deal. On Hacker After Dark. I never like to start Hacker After Darks um, on the negative side, the down side, but tonight uh, we, we need to, obviously, with the passing of Mike Martin uh, in Tallahassee earlier today. Mike Martin, who was Florida State baseball, was unbelievably successful as the Florida State baseball manager, skipper, um, was there forever countless conference championships, countless appearances in the College World Series. I mean, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of not only conference victories, but outright wins as the skipper at Florida State. I mean, he 
was an institution there at Dick Hauser Stadium. And back in the day when I lived in Tallahassee, I moved to Jacksonville when I was 11 years old. So my entire adult life has been spent here, the last 29 years of it. But I was born in Leon County, Florida. And before I moved to Jacksonville, 1992, 93, 94, friends of my mom um, took me to Florida State baseball games. And I know that seems kind of ironic to most of you. Obviously, most of you believe I am a Gator homer and I see through orange and blue goggles, and that's fine. But there was a time where I went to quite a few Florida State baseball games. And I saw the likes of Paul Wilson and Doug Mankiewicz, and J.D. Drew, and all those guys that were so good for Florida State baseball in the early to mid-1990s. And I sat in the section with the animals. And I believe they're still there. The animals are what they sound like. They're diehard baseball fans that come up with their own songs and chants and affecting the opposing team, and it was fun, right? I mean, I was nine years old sitting with the animals at Dick Hauser Stadium. And in having season tickets to Florida State baseball, which essentially is what I did with my mom's friends that took me to these games, I got to go on the field a lot. I got to hang out with some after parties and season ticket things. And I got to meet head coach Mike Martin a bunch. And again, this was 30 years ago. I mean, it's a long time. Denmark, you weren't even alive with what I'm talking about. This was a long time ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Mike Martin, I cannot begin to tell you how many autographs I have of that man. Pictures I took with Mike Martin. He was always so generous with his time. I mean, here I am, a nine-year-old kid, a 10-year-old kid, and he took time out to talk with me at all of these events and take pictures with me and sign autographs and, and ask me questions about my family and things along those lines. And it's stuck with me forever, man. It's stuck with me for the last three decades. You know, I was programmed, and, and this was similar with Bobby Bowden, too, quite frankly. I was programmed by my... Gator uh, family, if you will, brainwashed, I guess, at a young age to love everything Florida and hate everything Florida State. And then you actually meet a guy like Mike Martin. And and again, you meet a guy like Bobby Bowden. I think they're, they're two very, very similar people. And they're salt of the earth, man. They're, they're unbelievable guys. Great sports coaches, managers, but even better human beings. And when I found out the news today of Mike Martin passing, it really bothered me. I mean, I know he was 80 years old, I believe, obviously lived a great life. But I just think back to, I mean, we're talking probably well over a dozen times in that two or three year stretch. Again, 92, 93, 94, when I still lived in Tallahassee, that I got to hang out with Mike Martin, got my picture taken with him and he was just a great guy, man. He was a great guy, and I hope people realize that. Not only was he a great baseball manager, one of the best college managers the sport has ever seen, but he was an even better guy. And condolences to Mike Martin's family. 
condolences to everybody over there at Florida State. I know they're having a memorial where people are dropping things off at the stadium tonight. and um, That's a loss, man. That's a loss. Very similar to me and we lost Coach Bowden over there. Two absolute legends in Tallahassee, Florida with Bobby Bowden and now Mike Martin that are, are gone. And condolences to everybody with Florida State University. And that was a tough one for me because, again, I'm sure at some point maybe this summer I can go through some of my uh, totes or bins in the garage and I'll have a bunch of things with Mike Martin's signature on it. I'll have a bunch of pictures with me and Mike Martin. And that was a very cool moment for me being 9 and 10 years old, being able to hang out with those teams and hang out with that coaching staff. And even today, you know, I remember Doug Minkiewicz, right, when he won the World Series with the Boston Red Sox. That was a cool deal for me because I remember Doug Minkiewicz was on those teams. Paul Wilson, the pitcher, was on those teams. J.D. Drew, and that was a good Florida State team, obviously. I'm talking about all these major leaguers that went on from there to have great professional careers. So it was a lasting moment for a 9-, 10-year-old kid back in the day 30 years ago. And again, prayers up to everybody over there in Tallahassee with the loss of Mike Martin earlier today. There is no easy transition from that, but we are a sports program. That is what we do, and the show will go on. And the show will go on here on Hacker After Dark on this Thursday night in Jacksonville here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM. Again, former Jaguar wide receiver Cecil Shorts comes up in less than 10 minutes. I said this off the top as well to Baloo on the two-minute drill. Last night in the world of college basketball, that felt like something for the Gators. I don't exactly know what it is, and maybe it turns out to be indigestion, right? But I just had a feeling watching that game, you know, after seven years of Mike White, a disappointing first season of Todd Golden, and quite frankly, a disappointing half a year this year, Florida basketball has just been kind of blah, really, since Billy left. Yeah, they've made some NCAA tournaments, and they had a nice run with Chris Chioza and that team, but even that was, what, six, seven years ago now. It's just been stale, man. It just hasn't been good, particularly the last couple of years. Well, last night, they went toe-to-toe with one of the giants of college basketball. There were a lot of Billy Donovan teams that did not go into Lexington and win an overtime game in Rupp Arena. That's hard to do. Down three with 10 seconds to go, and Walter Clayton buries a three to tie the game, and then ultimately Florida wins it in overtime. Could that lead to something? I hope. That's the hope, right, for that team, that program, that fan base. But watching that game, it was the first time in a while that Florida athlete for athlete was right there with Kentucky. They were right there. I mean, you with Walter Clayton and Zion Pullen and Riley Kugel and Will Richard, Tyrese Samuel. I love Alex Condon, the freshman. They got some guys, man. Tip your cap to Todd Golden. They're 15-6. and six. They're now 5-3 and three in conference play. They've won four SEC games in a row. Now, you win a big game like that. You got another big one against Texas A&M on Saturday. You need to keep it rolling. But remember January 31st, 2024. 
I'm not going to say it's the rebirth of Gator basketball or anything like that, but when I turned that television off last night after watching that overtime win, that felt kind of like a Billy Donovan win. That felt kind of like a win that you had in the mid to late 2000s. It felt big. Now they need to go obviously continue, like I said, a big one against A&M on Saturday. But it's hard to win games in Rupp Arena, and it's hard to win overtime games in Rupp Arena. And Florida did that last night. And that could potentially be the beginning of something very nice for Todd Golden, that staff, and that program now moving forward. Thursday night, Jacksonville, Florida, 1010XL and 92.5 FM. Jacksonville, we are glad you are with us. Back to the National Football League. Recap Championship Sunday. Take an early look ahead to Super Bowl 58. And, of course, we're going to talk a lot of Jaguars. We'll do that with Brad Spielberger, the salary cap analyst for Pro Football Focus. He comes up in about 30 minutes. Coming up next, former Jaguar wide receiver Cecil Shorts. Let's talk Josh Allen. Let's talk Calvin Ridley. Let's talk Trevor Lawrence. Let's talk Jags and more. Cecil Shorts next on Hacker After Dark. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. It is a Thursday evening, and we are glad you are with us. Super Bowl 58 is uh, coming up in 10 days. San Francisco and Kansas City will get it on in Las Vegas, Nevada. We'll touch a little bit about that, more so next week. But There's a lot going on with the Jacksonville Jaguars as well, as believe it or not, we are less than six weeks away from NFL free agency. With all that, we welcome in my friend Cecil Shorts, former wide receiver for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He's with us every week here on Hacker After Dark. Cecil, how you doing? I'm good, brother. How about you? Cecil, we're good. Thank you for the time. And I want to get into Championship Sunday, do a, a brief look at the Super Bowl. We'll certainly do more of that next week with you. But the last time you and I talked was prior to Trent Balky holding his press conference last week. And, boy, a lot of interesting things came out of that press conference, Cecil, beginning with the fact that apparently negotiations between the club and Josh Allen, at least as of last Thursday, had not even taken place yet. What was your reaction when you heard Trent Baalke say that? That's, uh, if I'm a Jaguars fan, that's frightening to me. Um, not, not to overthink things, but he was probably your best player on the field week in and week out. Um, he was the guy that had a career year this year, um, Pro Bowl year this year, and he should be the number one priority on the list. And for him to not to even say, or for him to say we haven't even started contract talks yet, makes me a little bit <clears throat> concerned. Now, I do know they can tag him. I do know there can be some mending of things. Um, and if they, have that, if they have talks when it comes to contracts, they can agree on something. But it's just the fact that if I'm a, if I'm a fan, I'm worried. Why haven't you even contacted them and said, hey, we're interested. What do you need? Or even have preliminary talks or even just communicate at all saying, hey, we understand how much you mean to this franchise. We want you around. We haven't thought about numbers yet. We're just going to let you know that we're thinking about you. Like something simple as that to me is a big deal. If I'm a player, that's a big deal. You need to reach out and communicate. And let me know what you're feeling. Because if not, if that's not the case, then I want to go somewhere that, that I feel wanted. That's going to pay me. It's going to give me what I'm worth. Um, but he shouldn't be able to leave the building. He shouldn't be able to leave Duval without some type of contact from Trent. So I'm kind of disappointed. And if I'm a fan, honestly, I, I don't like what I'm hearing. 
clearly I think everybody Cecil would be shocked if Josh Allen wasn't a Jaguar, but you brought up the franchise tag, and that appears to be where it's headed. Why do players hate the tag? Because every former player I talk to, they absolutely hate the franchise tag. Are you on that boat as well? Yes, um, simply because there's no longevity. It's one year instead of four years. It's one year instead of five years. There's no uh, signing bonus. There's no, um, hey, I already proved my worth. Why can't I get what I am worth? You know what I mean? So unless you're Kirk Cousins (laughs) and you're getting that crazy one-year deal every single year because quarterback money is different, most players don't like it. There's no stability. There's nothing year to year. And you're in a you're in a game that you play every Sunday that is you're going to get hurt. You're going to get injured. Like that's just part of the game, especially in his position. So I need that you want that security. You want that financial security, that yearly security, like, hey, I'll be around. Um, and you especially if you if you earned it outright. There should be no question. Pro Bowl year, um, just an outstanding, outstanding player week in and week out. So if I'm him. I could, I just, the tag is just not appealing to guys that already earned and I played their contract. Former Jaguar wide receiver Cecil Short. Cecil, final Josh Allen topic. Well, Josh Allen had a great year. I mean, a great year. He's in the Pro Bowl, 17 and a half sacks, the best year of his career. It was a contract year. I, I'll never forget Mercedes Lewis, your former teammate. Mercedes Lewis, best year as a Jaguar was a contract year as a Jaguar. Mm-hmm. Jawan Taylor's <laughs> best year was a contract year, and then he obviously got paid in Kansas City. Do you have any trepidation at all? Josh Allen, normally an eight-and-a-half, nine-and-a-half, maybe a ten-sack guy, all of a sudden his contract year, he has 17-and-a-half sacks. Do you believe this is the Josh Allen we'll see moving forward, or does the contract year tend to motivate people a little more? I'd be lying if I if I said contract years don't motivate people, but it's hard. It's hard to me when 17 and a half sacks let that man walk. Like <laughs> it's hard to me when you see some of the pass rush moves, when you see the impact he had on the game, when you see what he can do. Um, now they they have him the last four years. They've seen him firsthand. They've seen the work ethic. They've seen uh, his attitude. They've seen the type of person and player he is. So when that does happen, where teams let that particular player go they have a reason behind it, right? They, they simply just don't believe in them. But it's hard for me if I'm Jackson to let that kid walk. Um, he, I've never heard anything but good things about that kid. So I understand, but at the same time, 17 and a half sacks this year, when he's been an eight to 10 guy range, to me, I want to see more. And I think you'll see more and more and more from that type of guy. Sometimes it takes it takes kids longer. It takes, it takes guys longer to understand how to be a pro, understand to get that confidence, understand different pass rush moves. Um, some of the best players in the league in the league are left tackles and right tackles. To me, the best player in the Super Bowl next week is Trent Williams. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe me, watch Trent Williams. He is dominant every single week, punishing people. He's athletic. He is just amazing. So to, for somebody that's on the opposite side, defensive end, to have 17 and a half sacks, come on. You, you got to, to me, that's, that, that's a big deal. Let's go to your position, wide receiver, Calvin Ridley. Whatever happens with Josh Allen, Cecil, will directly affect Calvin Ridley. There'll be a domino effect there. If Josh Allen is tagged, it looks like Ridley then would hit the open market as an unrestricted free agent. Ridley is among four guys at the receiver position that could be in for very, very lucrative paydays. Michael Pittman in Indy is a free agent. T. Higgins in Cincinnati is a free agent. Mike Evans in Tampa 
your former teammate, is a free agent. And then Calvin Ridley here in Jacksonville is a free agent. And the thought is Pittman likely to get franchised in Indy. Potentially Higgins gets franchised in Cincinnati. It's a great wide receiver free agent crop right now. But, boy, if Higgins and Pittman get tagged, that's going to be great news for Ridley if he hits the open market. Yeah, Ridley's going to get paid. Um, just looking at the stats alone, the catches alone, um, and coming off of a year where he didn't play, and I don't know how many years, one of the year and a half or whatever the case may be, it's a big deal he put those type of numbers up. So he'll get paid, no doubt about it. Uh, the numbers don't lie. But if I'm Jacksonville, I think I'm in fear. I don't want to overpay him. Going back to the Josh Allen conversation, I've seen him every day. I know what he brings to the table. I know where he lacks, right? I know where he struggled. And to me, if I'm Jacksonville, I'm not going to overpay a guy uh, that I'm not confident in he's going to run the correct route each and every time he's running routes. I'm not confident in that he's on the same page with my quarterback who I drafted number one, who I'm going to have to pay again. Um, so it, to me, it's just some, it's some things in there that really will get paid whether if he's here or somewhere else. But the, for the right number, I think Jacksonville will be willing to pay for something uh, maybe that T. Higgins will get or something that maybe Mike Evans will get or Pittman. I'm not, I don't think he's the same. He should get the same dollar amount if I'm Jacksonville. Other teams, they'll, they'll pay, they'll explore, they'll, they'll overpay because they want receiver help. But if I'm Jacksonville and I know this guy, I'm being very selective on what number we're getting him per year. I think you got to be smart about that. See, so if you're Calvin Ridley, if you're Josh Allen, if you're any of the hundreds of NFL guys that are scheduled to become free agents, we are now 39 days away, I think, under six weeks away from free agency. What are the conversations like? I mean, do you start talking with your agent now? Do you lay out a list of demands, a list of teams? How are the free agents to be now less than six weeks out from free agency? What's their life like right now? Well, around this time, uh, which is Super Bowl week, I think the five next week, right? Not this week. That's when you'll get a lot of chatter where everybody's kind of meeting and talking and, and you know, meeting and greeting at different parties or sitting down having meetings between um, Super Bowl and Combine. So February is a busy time of year. So you'll sit down with your agent if you're a player. You'll have a, your list of, I wouldn't call it demands, but what you're looking for in a team. Um, you'll sit down with your agent. You'll communicate, hey, we think you can give this number per year. We think these teams are interested. And then your agent will go Super Bowl week and start picking and prodding a little bit, just seeing where the interest is, seeing, you know, who likes you, who doesn't like you, how much you can get a year. What's this, a $9, $10 million range? Is it, you know, $3, 4000000 million range? Is it big money, $18, 20000000 million range? Just depends on your position, right? And then that kind of starts the process of communicating. And then during the combine is when really things really pick up. Um and you'll get a good sense of, okay, this team wants me, that team wants me, this team's interested, that team's not interested in around what per year you will get. So it's, this is definitely a pickup time when it comes to if you're a free agent. The agents are really moving and calling and texting and trying to build relationships or reaching out to people they have relationships with. You'll see some uh, Adam Schefter tweets <laughs> and so on, trying to get some uh, insight and, and get some names out there. Um, so it's an interesting time of year. It's a fun time, but it's also it's a life changing time. But it's also a, uh, you don't really have much control. Now it's all about your resume, your injury history. Um, it's all about what your agent can do for you and put you in the best situation 
um, moving forward. So it's definitely a, a interesting time for sure. Final moments with former Jaguar wide receiver Cecil Shorts. Cecil, it starts March 11th, um, and that's the negotiation period. You can officially sign on March 13th. Is there a cutoff day where an agent and a player, if they're negotiating with, say, Jacksonville about re-signing, that they're going to say, all right, you've missed your window, I want to hit the market and see what's out there. If Jacksonville wants to bring somebody back, do they have to get that done a week, two weeks, three weeks in advance of free agency? And it, Because if they get too close to free agency opening, there's a temptation for players to see what's out there elsewhere? I would say it, it, it depends on the guy. I, I've heard stories where um, guys will give the hometown discount or guys will get, you know, I've been here, you drafted me. Hey, you got up until this time and give me a number or get a contract situated. If not, I'm going to hit the market, right? I think that's more of a, uh, not a scheme, but that's like a play that they that that agents will use to be like, hey, we want to get this deal done. If not, hey, Kansas City or other teams are more interested. We can hit the market. It's something that I think agents play just to get a, just to get a feel and to get kind of some pressure on the organization to make things happen. So it depends on the agent style and depends on the player. Um, but if you really want to be somewhere, you'll stay no matter what going on. If you really want to be somewhere, you'll stay and you'll listen. Um, but it got, it, it works on both sides, man. I got, I got to work on the organization you want to be with and I got to work on the, the Asian player side to, to come to an agreement. So I, I would say yes to it, but at the same time, if you really want to be somewhere, you'll you'll be you'll you'll give some leeway. See, so we'll do a lot more of this next week. But what's an early thought? San Francisco and Kansas City. I mean, all the Chiefs do is win. It's unbelievable. They're in another Super Bowl. San Francisco, you could argue, did not play great in the last two games that they won, both against Green Bay and Detroit. What's your thought early on here, ten days out? Well, Detroit gave him the game. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Lord have mercy. What was Detroit. your take on that? As an offensive Detroit guy going forward on fourth down, not kicking the field goal, I was screaming at the TV. I couldn't believe Dan Campbell was doing that. <clears throat> I have mixed feelings, if I'm honest, because that's how they play. Like that that aggressive style, that aggressive way is is what got them to that point. But at the same time, if you're a head coach, your job, I always thought your job is to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you that can think differently than you, that will hold you accountable. So maybe, uh, I, I, for example, at the end of the half, taking that point, taking that field goal, it didn't have one up 24-7, great. Don't go for it because then it's only a two-score game. You go for it, uh, you kick a field goal, it's a three-score game. Great, great job. Second half, why not do it at least one more time? Why not take the points? Have somebody there to coach. No, coach, coach, coach. We haven't been to the Super Bowl ever in franchise history. If you simply just go for it or kick a field goal, I don't care how long it is. I don't care how good or not good your kicker is. Like, have somebody in your back pocket to talk some sense into you. <laughs> like, it just, uh, you know what I mean? So I, I have mixed emotions. Um, but at the end of the day, he made the wrong call. That, that's just what it is. He made he made the wrong call. If you kick two field goals there or, I'm sorry, you kick two field goals there, you're in a different position maybe. Or if you don't run the ball, run, why are you running the ball with I think it was under two or before two minute drill, whatever it was, under two minutes, and they're about to score. I don't understand some of the play calling um, towards the end of the game. It was just some bad decisions as a staff they've made. Um, which, if you continue those bad decisions, you're going to end up like the San Diego. I'm sorry, San Diego. I'm aging myself. The <laughs> LA Chargers, <laughs> the LA Chargers coach, 
he continued to make bad decision after bad decision after bad decision, which led to him being, you know, exiled as a head coach. But I think Detroit can learn from this. Um, it just, to me, even though that got you there, you got to have somebody to help you make a better decision than what you made. So that, that's, that's the one thing in Campbell, no, no doubt about it. But to go back to the game, um, I think it's going to be interesting because <sighs> it's hard for me if I'm a betting man to go against Andy Reid <laughs> and Patrick Mahomes. And the way the defense is playing right now, they're playing lights out. Um, so I think it's going to be a heck of a game. I'm excited to see a healthy Debo Samuel. I think he'll come back healthy for the point, more healthy after uh, that one week of kind of relaxation this week. Um, but it's going to be a heck of a game. I'm not sure what the outcome would be, but I expect a hard-fought physical game. See, so we'll preview it next week. Final question. I was thinking of you watching the Baltimore uh, Kansas City game in regards to Zay Flowers. Great rookie year. He's going to be a phenomenal player, but good grief. The taunting penalty and then the fumble. Oh, um, what do you tell a young kid like that after that performance in Baltimore? You got to uplift him. You got to encourage him. Um, I think you tell him the truth. You tell him the truth. Like we had, we were in position multiple times. <clears throat> the taunting penalty was the same drive as the fumble. The taunting penalty hurt us but you had a chance to redeem yourself. And while you're redeeming yourself, you had you run a good route, you catch a pass, you put the ball out, and you put it in trouble. You didn't have to put the ball out. It wasn't fourth down. It wasn't the end of the game. If you just hold it tight and dive, or just put your head down and run through, you still probably get in. Or if you don't get in, guess what? It's second down or it's third down. We get another shot to get in the game or to get in the end zone. Excuse me. So it's definitely lessons that a rookie needed to learn. Um, lessons that he needed to go through, um, but he he definitely hurt the team with those two those two penalties, that one penalty in the fumble. It was just a a heartbreak. And then he goes on the sideline and hurts himself and cuts his finger. He, <laughs> yeah. His whole job is to his whole job is to catch the ball. You hurting your hand, right? So just some lessons to learn from a rookie who had an outstanding year, going to play a long time, I bet. Um, but those those things hurt big big time. You get Cecil Shorts every week here on Hacker After Dark. Cecil, have a terrific week. Next week, we will preview Super Bowl 58. Thank you, my friend. Hey, thanks. Anytime, brother. Let's ring up another guest on the All-Pro Roofing phone line. Back here on 1010XL at 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. Super Bowl 58 is all set. It'll be San Francisco and Kansas City. And amazingly enough, one month after the Super Bowl is played, the new NFL League calendar begins and free agency opens on Monday, March the 11th. With that as a backdrop, let me go to my buddy Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus. He is a salary cap guy for PFF. That's what he does, and we love having him right here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Brad, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? Hey, Brad, we're good, man. Appreciate the time as always. All right, before we dive into an off-season outlook and also get your thoughts on the Super Bowl, let's take a brief look back, Brad. I mean, the Jaguars were 8-3. and three. Things were going great. And then arguably the biggest collapse in the history of the franchise. What do you make out of what happened down here over the last six weeks? Yeah, it was obviously tough so sitting at 8-3 and three and then really just crumbling down the stretch. You know, I think at a high level, Trevor Lawrence was clearly not healthy or, or really even close to fully healthy down for the rest of the season. The pass protection all year was a problem. I mean, the run blocking was even worse. So, you know, operating behind an offensive line that really could not manufacture any plays for you. Um, but the big thing for me really was 
I was excited about this defense, you know, over the first two months of the season. Thought they'd turned a corner. All these young players started to make some more plays. Not just, I know, I know Trayvon Walker's always the hot uh, button issue, but seeing plays from Andre Sisco and, um, you know, at, at linebacker with, with Devin Lloyd. Like, I thought we were seeing this unit kind of take a turn. And then they were just terrible in coverage. They were good against the run pretty much all year, but just terrible in coverage down the stretch, no matter the opponent, um, which has made it harder and harder because the offense then felt like they had to be explosive. They had to score on most drives. And, and like I said, the offensive line couldn't do much of anything. So it really was quite the collapse, um, you know, in Jacksonville. And I'll just throw this in there. To me, uh, you know, it, it, was a, it was a failure from the personnel department, not the coaching staff. Um, you know, Trent Baalke trying to blame Doug Peterson, I thought was comical. Yeah, Trent Baalke had a really interesting press conference last week. As you can imagine, it's got a lot of reaction down here. And my one flaw of Baalke, well, I have several flaws for him, but the main one is thinking they could just run it back. I mean, last year they were 4-8 and eight before they went on that winning streak to get in the playoffs and to come back over the Chargers. And that's all great and wonderful. But at the end of the day, that was a 10-9 and football team in 2022 that did nothing last offseason. Their prized free agent was a kicker that Denver cut in the month of May. Now, I know they had some salary cap constraints and they had issues with the cap, but, Brad, they could have done something last year to affect the pass rush or get some you know, help on the offensive line, whatever. And to just sit on their hands and do nothing I thought was a gigantic gaffe on their part. No, no doubt about it. No, I, I totally agree. And, you know, also just like you, when you talk about running it back, like a draft class that essentially didn't address, you know, like di- didn't bring impact players in right away. Uh, you're drafting your third tight end. You're drafting your backup running back, both with, you know, second and third round draft picks. And I'm not saying in general, you certainly can draft for the future. And it's smart sometimes to build out depth and, and, and prepare for the you know succession plans in certain positions, all of those things is good, but you know, obviously the players didn't hit at all, you know, and 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 really were not factors in any way, shape, or form in this offense. So yeah, it, it was just 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 a lackluster effort in terms of the players that were given to the coaching staff. I'm not saying they're they're not they're blameless, um, but but I would if I had to pick a side. I certainly wouldn't be saying that the coaching staff failed the players or failed development. You would fit right in here in Jacksonville. I think much more people, many more people are on the Doug Peterson side of this than the Trent Baalke side. Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus. Brad, I think it's safe to say the Jaguars will be a lot more active this year in both releasing guys and bringing guys in. Let's talk about it. That's what you do with PFF. One of your main things is the salary cap and analyzing what's going to happen. And let's begin with Josh Allen. Obviously, that's one of the big topics here. Trent Baalke last week said he will be a Jaguar, although apparently negotiations have yet to begin, which is interesting. That looks like a prime situation, Brad, for the franchise tag, does it not? It certainly does. And that's also, you know, I thought was bizarre. Those negotiations should have been discussed in earnest before the season. Um, I, I know the sack totals had dipped from his first year, but, you know, we had him with 68 pressures, very high pass rush win rate. Uh, the, the positive regression to what he did this season is like why PFF exists. <laughs> and I'm sitting there last offseason and saying, like, I don't know why they're not at least trying to get something done here. You know, Nick Bosa is coming down the pike and is going to reset the market, which he obviously did. And you, it sounds like they didn't even try last offseason. So, of course, the guy goes out, has what was it, 17 sacks, whatever the number was. Um, and, and now he's going he's gonna to sign probably for 30 plus million dollars a year. 
Um, yeah, uh, at this point, here's the fascinating thing to me. So it sounds like, yes, a franchise tag is basically inevitable, but the Calvin Ridley dynamic to me, this just shows how, like bad planning and bad strategy where for folks that don't know, uh, it's been it's been speculated, I can tell you for a fact, where Calvin Ridley's trade conditions, the, the condition that if he signs an extension with the team, the third-round pick going to Atlanta becomes a second-round pick. That is the case if he signs a true extension with Jacksonville this offseason. However, if he were to get franchise tagged and play on that tag, it would stay as a third-round pick. It would not qualify that condition. That's what happened with Leonard Williams when he went from the New York Jets to the New York Giants. The Giants just tagged him and played him that first year on the tag and did not elevate the pick. So, again, I'm not saying you should like make all of your decisions w- within those parameters, but in theory – you're, you're calling Josh Allen's agent in November, and you're trying to, you know, again, like I said, already way too late, but you try to iron something out and get it done before the tag window, and then you free up that tag for Calvin Ridley. You get both players under contract, and you save a second-round pick, and instead it's a third. And none of these things seem to be on their radar. Um, it's just, again, just a failure from Trent Paul. Yeah, that would make common sense. There's no question about it. Again, you know, Brad Spielberger of pre- PFF, Brad, to Josh Allen, what type of money are we talking about here? I mean, is he going to get Bosa-esque money? I know Rashawn Gary got paid in Green Bay. There's a thought that maybe he's going to want more than that. Well, what's your thought on where Josh Allen's going to land here? Way, way, way more than Rashawn Gary. I don't know if he'll get Nick Bosa money. That's $34 million a year. Gary down at 24. So, so kind of, you know, it'll fall within that gap. Um, at the same time, though, I mean, this is a guy that is – a former top 10 pick, been healthy. Like I said, the, the, the sack production was not, you know, after the rookie season had dipped a little bit. But, you know, and it sounds like they view him at times maybe as not one of those elite elite talents. Like, he's good against the run, maybe not great against the run as a true three-down player. Like, they, they clearly have some issues. But there's no argument now. I mean, the guy is coming off of one of the best seasons of any edge rusher in the NFL um, and has all the pedigree in the world I think it probably starts with the three because you also have, you know, other players that are going to get extended and or paid this off season that are just going to push that market more and more forward. So I don't think it'll be Nick Bosa range, but I don't know if I'm his agent, I'm not taking anything less than like five one fifty. I don't see why he would. Calvin Ridley, Brad is the other dynamic here that you mentioned. Now let's assume that he hits free agency. It would be a mistake as you mentioned, but that appears to be where we're headed. If they tag Allen, what kind of money could Calvin Ridley see on the open market? Other great receivers like T. Higgins, Michael Pittman Jr., Mike Evans are also scheduled to become available. How do you see Ridley's market right now? Yeah, so the first dynamic is, you know, do T. Higgins and Michael Pittman get franchise tagged, which just pushes Ridley up the board to maybe being the top guy. You know, Mike Evans, of course, in that conversation as well. Uh, maybe, you know, because he's a year older, teams view that. And obviously they're very different players. But – Really, to me, obviously, the crazy high volume from a target share standpoint, I do think over the course of the year, you know, drop issues early, I think got way better as the year went on. I do st- still think he can create separation at the intermediate and deep levels. Probably better suited now is your move Z receiver, maybe not a true X anymore that can, you know, get off of press coverage. I think you probably want him getting some free releases, more space at the line, but still a very, very talented receiver. Um, and a guy that can produce in probably any offense in the NFL. So I think it'll be not top of market. I'm not even sure it reaches $20 million just because, you know, 29-year-old player, obviously coming off the extended absence, 
I, I projected on our you know free agent projections over at PFF a two-year, thirty-three million dollar deal that was kind of more with Jacksonville in mind. Um, and again, like you know, the market can always blossom depending on who gets tagged or who. Let's say Mike Evans resigns in Tampa. Then Calvin might be, you know, the bell of the ball on the market. But but I do think it's more in that second tier, you know, your Deontay Johnsons, your your I'm not comparing him to Christian Kirk, but like that second tier of receiver, I think, is more where he lands. A couple more for Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus. Other guys that I guess are going to be available for the Jaguars. A lot of backup caliber guys, Brad. I won't waste your time there. But two guys that, that I think are interesting. Ezra Cleveland, who the Jaguars acquired from Minnesota. He's going to be their starting guard if he re-signs. He's a free agent. And then Jamal Agnew, and I love what Jamal does as a returner, wide receiver in spurts, has injury concerns, and might cost a little too much for the Jaguars' blood. What's your thought there? Very fascinating, right? I mean, you make this trade at the deadline, but it is a super cheap trade. There's no sunk cost fallacy in play here where they feel like they, they have to get something done. But at the same time, I mean, Brandon Sheriff honestly had a decent year this year, but is clearly just like a shell of his former self physically. Do they move on from a Cam Robinson at tackle and, and maybe Walker Little goes back out to left tackle again, or you know, maybe goes to right tackle, Anton Harrison slides back over, which creates, you know, another void at guard. I think they should probably find a way to get it done. He's a very good run blocker, and I do think took strides this year as a pass protector, um, you know, doing better against speed to power rushers on the interior and just holding his own. I think it's not going to break the bank. You're talking nine, ten million dollars a year. You know, like mid-tier guard money. And I think I'd probably go for it. He's a good player. He's a high-floor player. He's a good athlete. You probably don't want him playing tackle, but he did play tackle in college. So in a pinch, maybe you do that. Um, I think it's probably worth it if, if they like what they saw when they brought him in. Um, you might as well keep him around. And what about Jamal Agnew, Brad? What's your thought there? Yeah, Agnew's interesting. Obviously, you know, special teams ability is nice. Um, you know, played cornerback today, obviously plays some receiver. I, I think there, because of, you know, late season injuries and things of that nature, I think he definitely still gets a little bit of money just because he has the versatility, the special teams acumen does get you a little extra cash. I, I think you keep him. I think they love him as that gadget option. Trevor Lawrence likes, likes him. Doug Peterson clearly likes him. And I think that explosiveness in the special teams game, um, you know, setting up good field position, breaking some, some big gainers off uh, is valuable. So, I, you know, two years, eight million, two years, 10 million. I think he will come down a bit from, you know, the strong deal he signed the first time around. But I also would probably keep him around if I could. You know, two things complicate this as we begin to wrap up with Brad Spielberger of PFF. Number one, you mentioned guys like Cam Robinson, Brandon Sheriff, uh, Foley Fadakasi, Sean Jenkins. The Jaguars could save a lot of money by just simply cutting these guys, some before June 1st, some after June 1st, uh, with the, where the Jaguars are in the cap, knowing Josh Allen's going to cost a lot. Uh, we'll get to Trevor here in a moment. Do you see Jacksonville, whether they want to or not, having to unload some of these veteran contracts? Yeah, I think they do because they either have to restructure them and push these capits out into the future, which just makes it more difficult to spend once Trevor does get an extension, which, like you said, we'll get to, um, but might be this offseason, right? So, obviously, you can delay when his money hits the cap on a new deal, but if you're pushing these capits out in the future and you're trying to add more talent around Trevor in 2025, 2026, um, and you have these dead capits for you know guys that aren't even on the roster anymore, it's probably not the way to go about it. So, I mean, Cam Robinson's the big one. You're clearing over $17 million uh, with just a, a standard pre-June 1 cut. 
Sheriff, I think, is interesting. You, you know, you can clear a lot of money there, whatever way you go about it. And he's going to be 33 years old next year. Like I said, his body is just kind of giving out on him. Uh, and, and then with Rayshon Jenkins, I actually thought he was pretty good this year. Kind of had a bounce back for him. But I, I really love the, the growth of Andre Cisco, and I think you could get cheaper there. And then lastly, Foley Fadakasi, you know, it was really nothing the first year. I think he was solid this year. But, you know, you extend Devon Hamilton. You extend Roy Robertson-Harris. You have enough there. I probably move on from him as well. You know, I ask you this every year, but for the people that obviously don't remember our conversations over the years, when people say the cap doesn't exist or you can always work around the cap, the cap is just a, a thing that, that that's there and, and you have to deal with it, but it's very easy to finesse. What's your response to that? No, so, so it is easy to finesse. And, and you can, you know, in the short term, get away with a lot. But event, it's a credit card, right? That's the easiest way to put it. It's a credit card. You can charge things and push that off for a very long time. Eventually, the bill comes due. And, and you have, you know, these massive, massive dead, dead cap hits that hamper your ability to spend. Um, you have to make tough decisions to let players go that you actually would want to retain, you know, as opposed to letting guys go that you're not interested in keeping around. End of the day, if you draft very well, you can kind of get away with whatever. Like that, that is the truth of the NFL. But there is no team that over a sustained period just outperforms other teams in the draft time and time again. It's just not a thing. And there is I'm not saying it's completely random, um, but there is some inherent randomness to drafting. And, and that's like the only way to get away with it. So long answer short. It is manipulable. Uh, you know, you can get away with it for a stretch, but but eventually it's always going to catch up to you. Brad, let's end with this. Trevor Lawrence, uh, we saw Burrow get paid after year three. We saw Herbert get paid after year three. Now Trevor is not coming off a very good season, certainly. And, and I think he's the long-term guy here, don't get me wrong, but because he struggled this year with injuries and poor performance, how complicated does that get? If Trevor's reps go into the Jaguars and say, hey, we want to talk Herbert or Burrow-esque money. They have to. They've no, they've no choice. And I think they have every right to. And I think he is still worth that money. I know he did not have a good season. Um, I frankly think, and obviously like his PFF grade and stuff like that, and I, I think when I watch the film, it matches it. His production does not match how good he was at all. Like, there's a huge gap. But, again, I'm not saying he was perfect. Issues down in the red zone. Um, you know, some late season issues just overall throwing interceptions, making poor decisions. No doubt about it. But him playing through all the various injuries he had and, and, you know, like all the intangibles and all those things that we don't really get to see but behind closed doors are happening, they do matter and teams do care. You know, missing way less time than anyone would expect with the knee injury, all these components. Obviously, what matters more is putting up stats and winning football games. But, you know, in his second year, goes to the playoffs, wins a playoff game, had a great season. You know, his agents are going to ask for Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert money, and and the Jaguars should do it. This is a, just like Josh Allen. Or they don't, and they help fix the offense, and then Trevor Lawrence puts up, you know, 4,500 yards, 35 touchdown passes and runs for another 505 and they're paying him 62 and a half million dollars a year next year. Like you have to, you know, protect against that. He's shown you enough. You know, he's your guy. If I'm them, I, I, I want to pay him Justin Herbert money because it will age very nicely in, in like a year's time. So you believe, and again, you do this every day. This is literally what you do. You believe the Jaguars would be better off to go ahead and do it this off season prior to year number four. 
Yeah, I, I do. I, and, and I understand the reservations there. I totally do. He, he was not, you know, himself this year. I totally get that. But you know he's your guy. He, he has been enough and shown you enough through three seasons to, overall, um, you know, I guess mainly just the second year, um, to, to know he's your guy. And the earlier you sign a franchise quarterback, a number one overall pick, the better, um, because the price is only going up. Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus. We absolutely love it. Brad, tell the good folks here in Jacksonville about PFF and what you have as we get further going into the offseason. Yeah, of course. So, so I'm all things free agency. So our top 150 free agents board is now out at PFF.com. There is uh, scheme analysis, film analysis, data, of course. Uh, there are comparable you know, past free agents that, that have a comparable profile to this year's crop of free agents. And, of course, contract projections for all 150 players over at PFF.com. Brad, we know you're busy, man. We certainly appreciate it. Quickly, San Francisco or Kansas City, what are your thoughts on the Super Bowl? Yeah, you know, I think Kansas City is going to pull it off. I I will say I think it's going to be a high-scoring game. I I think it skews towards a lot of points. um, And and I think Kansas City is going to find a way. I know not enough talk about how good their defense is. Um, A clear-cut top-five defense in the NFL, in my opinion, and they're going to give this, the Niners' offensive line some problems, get Brock Purdy under pressure, and the Niners will score. Uh, but I think Kansas City pulls it out, let's say, like 31-27. Brad Spielberger of PFF. Brad, again, know you're busy, man. Thank you, as always. Once free agency gets here, we'll see what the Jaguars do. Hopefully we'll dial your phone again and get your reaction. Thank you, my friend. Sounds great. Thank you. Back here on 1010XL at 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. We have reached the end of January, Senior Bowl right around the corner, and it is time for teams like Jacksonville anyway to begin shifting their attention to free agency and, of course, the NFL draft. And the Jaguars, well, quite frankly, they need to draft better than they have in years past. There is certainly no doubt about that. With that in mind, let's begin our draft talk With Ian Cummings, Pro Football Network, he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Ian, how you doing? Doing good, doing good. We're finally uh, getting into the offseason here, and you know, you know, like during the season, we're watching tape week in and week out, but this is kind of our Super Bowl on the draft analysis side, right? We're getting into the ramp up, and soon free agency is going to hit, and then we're going to have a clear idea of team needs and the Senior Bowl, the Shrine Bowl, so a lot of events on tap, and for the Jaguars in particular, man, I think a strong 2024 draft could go a long way, but I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Happy to be here. Yeah, man, we'll be dialing your phone a lot more often. It's certainly your time of year. And before we look forward, Ian, let's look back. The 2023 draft. Actually, you know, check that. Let's go back one more year to Trayvon Walker. Uh, Walker got a lot of grief nationally because he wasn't Aiden Hutchinson. Yet, Ian, towards the end of this year, amidst the Jaguar collapse, one of the positives, boy, certainly appeared that Trayvon Walker found himself a little bit towards the end of this season. What have your thoughts been on him? Yeah, I thought it was always going to be a little bit longer runway for him, right? I think the biggest discussion, the biggest debate surrounding him and Aiden Hutchinson at number one overall is with Hutchinson, you're getting a guy you know is going to be a difference maker on day one, not, you know, the motor, the hand usage, uh, athletic enough, right? But I think the juxtaposition was always that Trayvon Walker is this freakish physical specimen. I mean, the length, the explosiveness, the bend capacity that he has, the power capacity with that burst and length. You know, I think he was a very rare type of player, right? And obviously, you look at the hand usage, right? You know, he was mainly a power 
player coming out, right? He was kind of a battering ram for that Georgia defensive front. Not much else at the time, but you look at the physical upside, you look at what he can do, some of the things that he can do with his power profile, Aiden Hutchinson just can't do, right? It's that simple. So you look at that side by side, you know, a lot of people had Hutchinson as the higher rated player heading out, but you could have made an argument that Trayvon Walker was worth the investment long term. It was a tough decision, but it does look like he's starting to trend up. And I'm happy because, you know, when the NFL is better when he's at his ceiling, I think, because of how rare he is. Yeah, Trayvon Walker, 10 sacks this year in that same draft. Ian, they took Devin Lloyd also in the first round. Injuries have played a factor, I believe, to an extent. But to this point, two years in, is it fair to classify Devin Lloyd as maybe a little bit of a disappointment? I think it's fair. Yeah, I think you're still wanting more. But I also think, you know, NFL draft picks, they take time to develop, right? And sometimes development isn't linear, right? You know, I think there have been flashes and, you know, you just want to give him more time. And if he doesn't prove himself right, you also can't be afraid to cut your losses early, right? And take a guy to kind of re re up that, right? So I think it has been a little bit of a disappointment, but injuries can play a role, especially for a young player trying to gain traction with their development. I know this in college, he definitely showed the necessary tools to be taken that early. The investment was definitely worth it. Sometimes it just doesn't work out, but I think you know schematics could play just as well of an issue by using the versatility improperly uh, so I'm hoping that you know first getting a clean bill of health that is the key in 2024 and if he can do that hopefully he can kind of gain some traction because the talent was definitely there um, and then also maybe improving the defensive front so that he can play a little bit cleaner I think there's a lot of factors that go into it yeah and the Jaguars are looking for a new defensive coordinator we'll see what happens with Devin Lloyd when that new DC comes in Ian Cummings Pro Football Network here with us on 1010XL and Jack Jacksonville. And then, Ian, I go back to last year, and the Jaguar draft last year, by and large, well, was awful, uh, quite frankly. But the one shining spot was the first rounder. I mean, Anton Harrison, Ian, you know better than I do because you do this every day for a living. But if there was another rookie offensive tackle that played better than Anton Harrison, I'd like to see him. I thought Anton had a great rookie season. Yeah, he was one of the best out there, and it was good to see. He was my OT2 behind Paris Johnson Jr. I think Johnson had a good rookie year, but Anton Harrison. The good thing about Harrison, right, I think he took a few lumps earlier in the year, but you really start to see him kind of compound growth over the course of the year, which I think that's the best thing you can ask for from a rookie, especially a first-round rookie, right? The rest of their draft definitely did not get early returns, but if there's any pick you want to hit on, it's that first-rounder because that capital is so consequential. So to see him stack games, really, and kind of grow and kind of sustain that positive trajectory to the end of the year at a premium position, that really means a lot. That's not something to be taken lightly. So he was my OT2. I thought he was athletic, physical, but then also on passport protection you know one of the things that i really liked from him coming out uh really balanced very flexible really good foot speed of uh, technical prowess you know he was definitely showing more refinement toward the end of his college career and then a physical player in the run game too with that power with that athleticism and that road grading mentality i think he's showing all of that so i think for the jaguars right they definitely need more returns from the rest of the class next year but you can take a little bit of solace knowing that harrison looks like a a true impact player Ian, they owe Cam Robinson a lot of money, and there's been a thought around here since the season ended for the last couple of weeks that potentially with Anton Harrison on a rookie deal, could you swing him to left tackle so you don't have to pay Cam Robinson all that money and save against the cap with all the guys you got to resign, including Josh Allen. Do you see a path where Anton Harrison could be a good NFL left tackle? Yeah, absolutely. He played 23 games at left tackle in college, only one at right tackle. So, you know, I think it, it bodes really well for him that he, most of his experience at the collegiate level 
was at left tackle, but then he was able to switch to right tackle as a rookie, right? You know, not just sustaining growth and starting every week and getting thrown into the fire, but actually building on that through the season at a new position, right? I think that bodes well for him, for his versatility, wherever you want to play him, if you want to keep him at right tackle. But at the same time, he can shift back just as easily uh, because he has that pre-existing experience and because he went through all that adversity in his first NFL season. I think it's going to make it even easier for him. And I think it's a good problem to have, right? No matter what you do at left tackle, you have a guy in Anton Harrison who I think, you know, he proved himself at left tackle in college. He proved himself at a new spot in the NFL in his first year, his very first year, right? So very impressive thing for a young player, and it does give you flexibility, I think, to move him where you want. Ian Cummings does a terrific job covering the NFL draft for Pro Football Network. He's with us here on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Ian, while we're on the offensive line, quickly, uh, Luke Fortner has started every game for the Jaguars at center the last couple of years, and there's a lot of questions about Luke Fortner moving forward. I like him as a player. I just think it boils down to strength, Ian. I mean, he's getting overpowered at the line of scrimmage at times, and in the Jaguars' most important play of the year, fourth and goal in Nashville uh, just over two weeks ago, he got blown off the ball. And you could say that's largely the reason why Trevor Lawrence was not able to score on that quarterback sneak. Two years in, I mean, that's a pretty good sample size. Do you think the Jaguars need to need to look at replacing Luke Fortner? Yeah, I think it's definitely, like I said earlier, right, you can't be afraid to cut your losses early if a player is not meeting expectations. And he can be a decent player in some areas, but if he's not giving you what you need, then that's also a safe uh, assessment, right? I think Luke Fortner coming out was a pretty high floor prospect, right? I thought he was a good enough athlete. I thought he had really great natural leverage and, and he had a very compact frame, enough play strength, right? But you see the non-elite physical traits are there. You know, he doesn't have elite core strength and that can impact his ability to, you know, sustain blocks and prevent displacement. And then he's not a great power generator too. You know, sometimes centers need to get off the ball quickly and create displacement to kind of move the line forward. And I don't really think he has that in his toolbox either. So he's a solid guy, you know, kind of in the same realm as a Josh Myers at Green Bay, who's kind of had similar questions about him. You know, this guy could be a decent starter. Is he enough to really change your unit, kind of be an impact player? And I, you know, I liked him a little bit coming out, but looking at him now, I think it's safe to question that. And I think in the 2024 NFL draft, you do have options if you decide you want to take a new center. I think Jackson Powers Johnson from Oregon is a very talented player. Zach Frazier from West Virginia is very good as well. Cedric Van Fran, uh, he has a little bit of trouble dealing with power, right? So maybe a little bit lower on the Jaguars list. But if you need a starter, I think there are opportunities for you. So that's going to be a big decision for them. If it were me, you know, you spend a third rounder on him. I would be cognizant of, especially with Trevor Lawrence, really needing that proper protection. Maybe it's time to cut your losses and get an upgrade. Ian Cummings of Pro Football Network. All right, Ian, going back to last year again. Look, there's a lot of young tight ends in the league making plays, and it's not fair to judge a kid after one year, and I get that. But when you're a second-round pick, it's not his fault he was drafted in the second round. That's just reality where we are. Brenton Strange, I believe, had more holding penalties then he had catches this year, and he did miss some time with an injury. I mean, how disappointing of a rookie campaign was this for the tight end from Penn State? Yeah, you know, it's tough. It really is. And you mentioned it, too. It's not his fault he was drafted that high. I think, you know, as an NFL draft evaluator, right, my job involves being outcome independent, right? You know, if the player is drafted higher than I think they should be, right, it's not to me to judge right away because it's up to the team to kind of make that worth it, right? I think it's just as much up to Brenton Strange to kind of deliver, but also the team to put him in positions to succeed and develop him, not just physically, but also operationally and tangibly. And 
so far this year, it definitely didn't happen. I think to me, Brent Strange is more of a early mid day three guy. You know, the play strength can definitely improve. And I think the holding penalties compensating for that, that could be an issue right now. Uh, very good rack threat coming out of college, but you've got to scheme him touches because he's not that level of an independent separator right now either. Right. So I think what we saw is a player who probably wasn't ready for that increased role yet kind of getting thrust into it with that early cap capital. And then when he couldn't sustain, uh, got flushed out a little bit. So I think the hope is that he can get stronger in year two. The hope is that he can develop those more intangible parts of his game. But I think that was a common theme for a lot of the Jaguars picks on day two and three is guys that were maybe a little bit overdrafted and as a result, maybe kind of put in inadvantageous situations. But strange in particular, right? You know, I think the offense – didn't really integrate him well enough, but also I don't know if he was well-equipped for that in, on day one. You know, Ian, I'm never going to be confused for an NFL general manager. I'm not breaking any news there, but what I do is I talk to guys like you, and when the Jaguars draft players, I talk to guys that covered them in college, and the word on Tank Bigsby at Auburn when the Jaguars drafted him is he's a fumbler. He had fumbling problems in college, and that's all I really knew about him. I mean, obviously, I watched him being down here in the SEC, but I really didn't study his game, but I remember two or three different people told me that he's a fumbler. And then we get into the year, and he fumbles the ball, and he fumbles the ball a lot, and the ball bounces off his hands and causes interceptions. It got so bad to the point where the Jaguars really didn't even use him in the backfield towards the end of the year. He was on kickoff returns after Jamal Agnew got hurt I mean if you're a fumbler in college Ian and then your rookie year the same thing is that something that can be corrected or is that going to be a problem for him moving forward I'll say this it's going to take a lot of focus right because I think Tank Bigsby I was actually a fan of his coming out you know I was willing to kind of give some benefit of the doubt because he was such a talented runner and I think at Auburn one of my favorite things about his game is that you know he's got good enough size right but he's an exceptional creator, right? You know, very good lateral agility, very good, you know, you know, transitions between lateral and vertical mode as well, right? You know, you can make quick cuts and then accelerate upfield, really good swimming through congestion. So that was a strong part of his game. But I think, you know, especially for rookies, it's really easy. If you fumble once, if you fumble twice, if you don't show that reliability, right? And especially for Tank Brigsby, who's a guy in college football, uh, really tried to go above and beyond to create sometimes. And sometimes you put the ball at risk when you do that, right? You know, you're trying a little bit too hard to get that extra yard. Maybe you should just, you know, take the modest gain, get down. And if you try too hard, sometimes the ball comes loose. You sacrifice that ball security. So I think it's really easy to get in the doghouse at the NFL level if that happens once or twice. And I think, you know, with the interior line issues as well, not getting the necessary push. And then you have a guy in Bigsby who sometimes does a little too much trying to create when he should just take the open hole. Um, it could have been a recipe for disaster in his first year. So do can he improve it? You know, I think it's going to take a lot of focus on his part. I think it's one of those things that sometimes in the heat of the moment, old habits can take over and that can be an issue. Right. But I also think he's talented enough where I want to see out that development. I want to give him a chance to correct that. Right. You never want to bury a guy for his first year mistakes. You know, rookies and young players develop at different time, time spans. So I want to give him the time. But at the same time, I can't say I can't sit here and say, yeah, he'll correct it. Right. You never know. Uh, and it is one of those kind of habitual things in the heat of the moment. But he's a talented enough runner where I do want to give him a shot. I'll tell you this, too. I've shaken a lot of hands in my day. Tank Bigsby's got a pair of paws on him. I'm surprised yeah. he fumbles the ball because that handshake, that is a man handshake that Tank Bigsby will give you. There is no question about that. Final moments here with Ian Cummings of Pro Football Network. All right. Uh, the one bright spot in the mid to late rounds last year, Ian, 
appeared to be Antonio Johnson. Now, he had some hamstring issues that caused him a lot of training camp in the first part of the year. But once Antonio Johnson got out there, that did not look like a fifth-round pick. I think Jacksonville might have found one there. Yeah, he was the top 100 guy for me. So I was really happy, not just that he went to that situation, because I think he got to play in his natural role to slot a lot. I think, you know, once he got those opportunities, he really showed out. I think, you know, some of his top selling points coming out of college being 6'3", right? I think he's pretty fluid for his size. I think he's got really good agility, foot speed for his size. And the dude is explosive. He is physical coming downhill. Whenever you have a slot defender or a hybrid safety, you want them to be physical. You want them to be authoritative and support, but then also, you know, triggering on short passes, right? And I think he showed that. I think the playmaking flashes that he showed were very promising as well. So I was really happy to see him get in that situation because between Tyson Campbell and Darius Williams, Putting him in that slot role, you know, he can he can execute safety rotations too. I think disguise coverages a little bit. I think there's a lot of upside with him and getting him in the fifth round, man. You know, I think that was a really good value. And I'm hoping that he can kind of build on that in year two because the athleticism, the size, the physicality, um, all of those things are very central for his game and give him a lot of upside. And Ian, we'll hopefully have you on every couple of weeks. Obviously, we're still about three months and change from the draft. You're just now putting out you know, seven-round projections, a lot of mocks beginning to come out. I took notice of yours because I love what you did with the Jaguars in your latest seven-round mock. You went interior D-line in the first round, and then you went a very familiar name to those of us here in Jacksonville in round two. Tell Jaguar fans about it. Yeah, Byron Murphy, the second in round one, I uh, was a big fan of what he saw off on tape. I, who did I pick him round two? I, I've got so many picks in my mind. It gets jumbled around. Who, can you remind me real quick? Yeah, the Georgia wide receiver, Ladd McConkie. Yeah, Ladd McConkie. That's right, because I knew I wanted to take A.D. Mitchell for the Jaguars in this mock. You, you're jogging my memory now. Thank you. But um, the Giants ended up taking him because I really liked his fit with Malik Neighbors. So, unfortunately, wasn't able to get him. But Ladd McConkie, in my opinion, I know a lot of Jaguars fans want a wide receiver with size and length because, you know, a guy to dictate coverage is a little more on the boundary. But Lad McConkey to me, is a phenomenal football player. I think you get him in that offense with Christian Kirk. Well, I think he bears some similarities to I think he's a very explosive athlete, really good throttle control as a route runner, very good nuance and, and you know, separation ability. The IQ is there with him to manipulate defensive backs and kind of create advantageous leverage for himself. And then he's got strong hands over the middle of the field. He's a good rack threat if you scheme him touches. I think he's a very solid football player with that you know, kind of schematic versatility to the point where he can be integrated very well, very early in his career. So I think you need reliability, wide receiver, you know, you want size, right? At the end of the day, if you can get a guy who can separate, can catch and has that speed that McConkie has, I think that's a very good combination to bank on. So that was one of my favorite one, two combinations, getting him and Byron Murphy, the second, I think those are two difference makers for sure. Ian, as we wrap up, we got about two minutes to go, just a, a broad overview. We'll dive more into this and, you know, the coming weeks when we have you back on, hopefully, but how would you assess the 2024 class? Positions of strength, position of weakness overall, how do you assess it? I think, you know, overall, the blue chip talent is absolutely there. I think, you know, there's – I have over 10 blue chip graded players on my board, the potential generational prospect, Martin Harrison Jr. I think the top end talent is very strong. Where teams are going to start to kind of have to navigate a little bit more on their own is kind of in that middle round range, in that late round range. And that's kind of – that's always the deal, right? But I think it's even more this year uh, because you do have a little less depth in the early round ranges, but a lot of guys who could be potential contributors in the middle and later rounds, I think the depth in that tier is very 
very good. So it's going to be an interesting class to sift through. Wide receiver is very strong if you need a wide receiver. Offensive tackle is very strong if you need offensive tackle. And we've seen in previous years, too, offensive tackle to offensive guard converts. you got some guys with five-position versatility. So I think the O-line class is pretty strong, too. And then on the defensive side, I think defensive tackle is very strong. I think you have a few linebackers, edge guys who can join rotation and make a difference. Uh, running back is a little weaker, right? But I think for the Jaguars, if you're comfortable giving Tank Bigsby a shot, maybe give him a shot. If you're not, there are some guys in the later rounds. Overall, I think it's a pretty deep class with some really strong position groups at wide receiver and offensive tackle, those premier positions. And that can help a team like Jacksonville kind of, you know, get momentum going again. Because I think this past class kind of caused an aberration there. But if they can start to stack good picks again, uh, it could be a good thing for them. We'll see what happens in free agency. But I'm going to scream into this microphone every night. They better get 320 pounders. I don't care what side of the ball. Interior O-line, interior D-line, you better get the big uglies in the first, second, and third rounds until at least we see what they do in free agency. Ian, tell the good folks here in Jacksonville, man, Pro Football Network, what can people look forward to when they head over to the website? Yes, sir. So we are just gearing up. Uh, first off, at PFN365 on Twitter is where you can follow Pro Football Network. You can follow me at IC underscore draft. We've got Senior Bowl and Shrine Bowl content coming up this next week. We've got the NFL Combine early March. We're going to be covering that as well. But then in the meantime, we're going to have a ton of mock drafts kind of exploring different possibilities and different outcomes. We're going to have more scouting reports coming out. We're going to have positional rankings, everything that you need. And of course, anytime you have a specific question that you want to contact me directly, uh, again, at IC underscore draft, you can uh, follow me on Twitter hit me up there and uh, I'll try and get back to you but yeah it's going to be a lot of draft content it's going to be a lot of gearing up to that April moment when we finally see who becomes the next Jaguar, Jacksonville Jaguars picks and I'm very excited for the process leading up to it because that's just as exciting. Hey Ian always enjoy the conversation man thank you hopefully we can do it again in a couple of weeks. Yes sir thank you for having me. Back here on 1010XL and 92.5 FM in the city of Jacksonville. We are glad you are with us. The end of January and a little slowdown in the craziness that was the transfer portal. Hard to believe spring football for some schools just a couple of weeks away. We got a brand new contract extension in Tallahassee with Mike Norvell. And of course, college football still feeling the effects of the retirement of Nick Saban. With all that, let me go to my friend Connor O'Gara, SaturdayDownSouth.com. He does a terrific job covering college football, and he's always kind enough to join us here on 1010XL. Connor, how you doing? I'm doing really well. It feels like a lot has happened since the end of college football season. It feels like we haven't had an offseason. It's just been more of a continuation of the regular season. Alabama, they're having a mass exodus right now, Connor, after Nick Saban's retirement. Florida State and Florida have both reaped the benefits of that with guys out of the transfer portal. Did did Alabama see this coming, that so many guys would want out after Saban announced his retirement? I don't think you ever really know. I, I think with the way that it's set up with the 30-day window, you have to expect some sort of significant turnover. And, and the timing of it was always going to be difficult. It, it hurt Alabama. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I would expect them to be pretty active in the post spring window, because I think that they're going to get hit probably again after they have guys that are like, Hey, I'm not, you know, where I want to be on the depth chart with this new coaching staff, I'm going to hit the portal. Um, so it's not to say that it's even going to be over after this 30 day window, but it was always going to be difficult. There's a lot of talent. I mean, if Ohio state fires Ryan day after this year, 
Look at what that roster becomes and how quickly teams are going to want to swoop in and take advantage of this. And yeah, I mean, not everybody has players of Alabama's caliber. The fact that you can get a Caleb Downs, a Caden Proctor, these guys that these programs, so many programs didn't have any chance of during the recruiting process. You mean to say like, hey, we got another crack at being able to get them. Uh, of course, it was going to, to lead to some sort of, uh, uh, you know, roster attrition without having those penalties in place. But look, I, I think that Alabama is still feeling like it'll have one of the most talented teams in the country. And I still think that they're going to be able to make some moves in that post spring window. What were your thoughts on the Kalen DeBoer hire? And again, not a lot of SEC ties, certainly. And we've seen that work out in the past for some. It certainly has not worked out for others. The whole situation there with DeBoer, how did you feel about that? Yeah, I liked the hire, and I'm not sitting here saying that I think it's going to be a knockout, slam dunk, home run, grand slam, whatever you want to call it, because I don't think anything is in this day and age. But those who are dismissing it because he doesn't have Southern roots, I, I think that's the worst take that you can have with this, just because there have been so many examples of coaches that have been in spots like that where they haven't had those Southern roots. Obviously, Nick Saban, LSU, we've seen – the way that it worked out with with Les Miles, who didn't have those connections to the South before he got the LSU job, Brian Kelly, and even Urban Meyer. I mean, Urban Meyer is the one who close, most closely resembles Kalen DeBoer. I mean, if you look at his resume and his rise through the sport, like that's kind of the goal of what this becomes. Now, obviously, when Urban got to Florida, he recruited his tail off, and he he assembled a staff that was built to win national championships. And that's going to be determined. That's going to determine what Kalen DeBoer ultimately does. But uh, people that are saying like, "Oh, this guy, you know, he's never been in a big time program, whatever. He's not going to know expectations." The guy was just coaching in a national championship game. He's twelve and two against AP top twenty five teams in four seasons as a head coach, two of which were at Fresno State. So I, I think that he has obviously a, a learning curve that lies ahead. But I'm confident overall in his ability to coach, and I don't think it matters where where you put him he's going to be a guy that's going to understand his surroundings. Connor O'Gara of SaturdayDownSouth.com here with us on 1010XL in Jacksonville. Connor, let's bring it back closer to home. Let's begin with Florida. Certainly they have the NCAA probe issue with the Jaden Rashada situation that just seems to always come back to bite them in the last calendar year. We'll see what happens. But from a portal standpoint, some better news for the Gators as of late. Jameer Grimsley from Alabama to Florida. Robinson, the big D lineman that originally signed with Texas. He asked out of that letter intent. He is now with the Gators. So Billy Napier bringing together some talent here in the month of January. He is. Um, and look, they, they need to. They, they just do. Like that. That's reality for Florida and understanding that for the third consecutive year, it feels like they're still going to have some significant holes in that roster in the spring that, that Billy Napier is looking at. And it's going to be difficult to assess where they're where they're particularly good when we know that there, there should be post-spring moves that are coming. I, I think the question that I still have with all of this is related to the scheme. It's related to... Billy Napier being also the, the play caller and CEO of his program and feeling like, man, you have areas of need that need to be addressed uh, in, in that department, not having somebody that's specifically devoted to, to special teams on that staff. And you just kind of wonder, like, all right, how different is it really going to be? And everybody's going to want to talk about how you know DJ Lagway is developing and all eyes will be on him in spring. Maybe that's good for this Florida team. They can kind of quietly – 
you know, build up other areas uh, that, that are obviously hurting um, probably on the offensive line as well. But yeah, to me, there are just so many questions about this team that there's probably not one specific move that could be made in the portal or anything like that. That's going to make me feel like we have everything that we need to know about Florida and like they can handle this gauntlet that awaits. Is it safe to say Billy Napier, Connor, might be on the hottest seat in America come 2024? Yeah, I think it's safe to say. I do. Um, look, if the Scott Strickland A&M thing happens, which everybody's been talking about that for, for a while now, TBD, uh, on whether or not we see any sort of development with that. But uh, if that happens, that'll be the first domino to fall. And I, I was the one defending Billy Napier for his job security in year two for those saying that Florida was going to pay $31 million to part ways with him. I pushed back on that. But year three, it's different. And in this day and age, you know, this won't be the fault of Florida fans if Billy Napier is fired. This won't be all oh, Florida fans are just so impatient. I mean, because he hasn't shown you anything to make you think that he was worth that $60 million investment that Scott Strickland made in him. That's what this comes down to. And in this day and age, you can't just sit there and, and you know, go four or five years with a losing program, if you don't see those results, you have to be able to turn things over. And, and there's just too much money to be made for having a decent, you know, good football team. And Florida right now just does not have that. The, he, his his seat is is scolding hot. There's there's no way around it. And everybody connecting the dots with that schedule, it feels like he is going to be showing up on every single hot seat list that is in existence this offseason. A couple more for Connor O'Gara of SaturdayDownSouth.com. Connor, if you told Florida State fans back in August of 2022 that 17 months from now, Mike Norvell signed an eight-year contract extension that will pay him in excess of $80 million, they would have laughed in your face. But that is the reality of the situation. And when bringing it back to Billy Napier, certainly 17 months from now, I don't expect – Florida to be giving Napier an eight-year extension and there were parallels between Norvell and Napier Connor to me up, up until last year but with the schedule and with everything going on I just don't see a turnaround at Florida the way Norvell was able to turn around Florida State I, I really don't and, and I think both coaches have actually done a pretty good job of evaluating the portal um, but Florida State is just in a much much different place right now and i know that florida state has just gotten kicked in the chin repeatedly over the course of the last month uh, really month and a half two months here that we're talking about but I, I still think that that they're in just such a different position and while nobody would have expected this this path that that mike norvell has followed really since the middle of that 2022 season you mentioned I still think that you you have to understand what got Florida State to this point. And they got to this point because they had a veteran-laden roster. They had so much returning production. And when you finish a season as promising as they did, it, it, it turns around your entire trajectory of the program. And Florida instead loses five in a row to end the season, to miss out on bowl eligibility, to miss out on getting what would have been valuable practices for that young team. And you're just still trying to figure out what your foundation is. And Florida wasn't, you know, in really that spot coming into this season or last season either. So, yeah, I mean, there are two coaches going in opposite directions. If Billy Napier does end up getting an extension like Mike Norvell's 17 months from now, knock me over with a feather. Uh, that will be the, the stunner of the decade so far. Yeah, I totally agree. Finally, with Florida State, DJU arrives on campus. He's going to be the quarterback from Clemson to Oregon State, now to Florida State. 
to me, the transfer portal, that's where I start wondering about it when you can be at three different schools in three different years. I guess that's a conversation for another day. But what do you make of DJU and how he'll fit into Mike Norvell's team? He's a bridge the gap guy. If you go into this knowing that, you'll feel much better about DJ Uyunglele, who, in my opinion, is a he's a fine college quarterback. He's not the five star guy that many thought he was going to be when he was, you know, putting up big numbers in that game at Notre Dame in 2020, and he did promising things early on, and then he saw Georgia to open that 2021 season. I truly believe that changed the entire path of his career. But he is a bridge-the-gap quarterback. You're replacing one of the better quarterbacks in Florida State history, Jordan Travis. I mean, that, that's reality. That, that's how good he was. And you're trying to do so with a guy who's going to keep you uh, in, in better shape than you could be if you're rolling the dice on one of these young guys coming up or something like that. We saw the depth. You know, obviously the transfer portal has hit Florida State at the quarterback position as well. But you're trying to bridge the gap. That's ultimately what you're trying to do with a guy like him. And, you know, with a veteran that, that in my opinion, got better last year with Jonathan Smith in that offense at Oregon State, the hope is that he is going to give you a higher offensive floor. And that's not such a bad thing. You're not going to be competing for national championships every single year just yet at Florida State. And so hopefully he's going to be able to kind of keep their head above water, maybe competing for an ACC championship and a conference that feels very much like it's still up for grabs in a given year. And who knows, maybe he puts together his best season to date. We just saw all these different Heisman Trophy candidates that were there because they got an extra year of eligibility. So we don't write off quarterbacks at the Saturday Down South podcast. We don't like to do that when they're too young, but I am very interested to see how it works out with him in Tallahassee. Final moments, Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South. Florida State's cleaned up in the portal. Norvell is basically the king of the portal. Mario Cristobal in South Florida has done a nice job this year, including Cam Ward saying no to the NFL, saying yes to Miami. What is Cam Ward's arrival, the former Washington State quarterback, Connor? What does that do for the Hurricanes heading into 2024? It's huge. It could keep Mario Cristobal off of those aforementioned hot seat lists going into you know his what will be his fourth season after this upcoming year. Uh, and that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to show that we have an offense that that is fun to be able to play in. And I thought at times last year, it looked like a really fun offense to be able to play in. And I remember watching Tyler Van Dyke against Texas A&M going, man, Miami has figured it out on the offensive side of the ball. And obviously it didn't work out. But, you know, the hope is that Cam Ward is going to give you something for one year that shows you Miami can still be that fun program. And, and Mario Cristobal is trying to show that he is worth that investment. It is so much easier said than done, and that's proven to be the case really for two decades since Miami's been in the ACC. But you're trying to establish that that you can have one of the premier quarterbacks in college football. It's just been so long since we've said that about Miami, and that's a problem. If you're not going to be good at the game's most important position, it's really hard to change how people think about you. Cam Ward has the ability to, to maybe step in and be that guy. The, the surrounding pieces have to be there for him. But, yeah, it is a really intriguing move after what looked like he was going to go to the NFL, just one of those wild portal recruitments that remind you that this day and age anything is, is, is possible, especially as it relates to NIL. And, yeah, needless to say, I'm sure he received a very nice NIL deal from Miami. Wrapping things up with Connor O'Gara. Connor, final question. It's where we are now in college football, right? Graham Mertz will be in year two in Gainesville as the quarterback. He's a portal guy. We talk about DJ Uyunglele at Florida State, Cam Ward at Miami. Not to be outdone, 
K.J. Jefferson from Arkansas to UCF, and from a Gator perspective, they're going to see all three of them. They play UCF, Miami, and Florida State, and K.J. Jefferson's on that schedule. He ripped Florida last year. What do you make of K.J. Jefferson now coming to Orlando? K.J. Jefferson at this time last year was my number one quarterback in the SEC coming into that the, the 2023 season, if you can believe it. I, I love K.J., and I, I'm optimistic that he's going to be in a, a scheme that allows his skill set to be maximized with what Gus is going to want to do with him. And I thought this past year with Dan Enos, if you saw that offense with the way that they pass protected, and I'd say that very loosely because they didn't do a whole lot of that at Arkansas, but it was a disaster. And his transition to more of a pro-style offense was bad. So kind of getting back to his roots, him being able to use his legs is just such a weapon. It, it is going to be a difficult run for those opposing quarterbacks that Florida is going to be facing this upcoming year. I mean, you're looking at at three new starters that they'll be facing, all of which can can beat up a defense that is just fallen on such hard times. I mean, any one of those quarterbacks, I, I think, can have a huge day against the Gators with all the questions that we have uh, about that group. And it, it feels like, you know, in, in a given week, any one of those quarterbacks can look like the best in the state of Florida. I, I love KJ but I would probably give Cam Ward the nod. And I was hearing it from Gator fans for not having Graham Bart's higher my SEC quarterback rankings. I think I had him at like 10 to start off. But yeah, it, it will feel really interesting to see the way that it plays out. Even though Florida is the only one of those schools with a returning starting quarterback, I think there's a lot of reason to make you feel like those three other quarterbacks are going to be put in better spots. Connor, you mentioned the podcast. Tell the good folks here in Jacksonville, man, Saturday down south where they can find your work. Yeah, I appreciate that. Saturday Down South podcast, uh, wherever you listen to its podcast, we do two times a week, even this time of year. There's still so much going on to be able to talk about. I had a great Paul Feinbaum on earlier this week. Uh, lots that we've been able to to dig into post saving retirement, all the different ramifications of that, talking about Ohio State's wild few weeks as well and how that can impact the entire sport. So Lots and lots of great stuff. Saturday Down South podcast. Appreciate it, man. He's one of our favorites, Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South. Connor, know you're busy, brother. Thank you for the time. We'll do it again soon. Thanks, man. We'll do. And thank you to Connor O'Gara, Saturday Down South, for joining us tonight here on Hacker After Dark as we've entered the month of February. But you take a look back at the craziness in college football in January, right? We crowned a national champion. That seems like a long time ago. But Michigan won the national title last month. Jim Harbaugh has since left to take the job with the L.A. Chargers. Nick Saban, the GOAT of college football coaching, retired. Kalen DeBoer, who took Washington to the playoff, now has the job at Alabama. Jed Fish left Arizona to replace Kalen DeBoer at Washington. Mike Norvell got a brand-new eight-year contract extension at Florida State. Just an absolutely crazy month of January in the world of college football. And who knows what the month of February will hold for the sport that we all love. Well, that'll just about do it. What has been a very, very busy Thursday night edition here of Hacker After Dark on 1010XL and on 92.5 FM. We certainly appreciate you guys for hanging out with us tonight. Again, thank you to Connor O'Gara, Saturday Down South. Thank you to Ian Cummings of Pro Football Network as we talked a little draft, certainly the Senior Bowl going on out in Mobile. But we also talked about some of the Jaguar young players from Trayvon Walker to Devin Lloyd 
to Anton Harrison. Thoughts on those guys moving forward as, again, we are now less than 90 days away from the 2024 NFL Draft. Thank you to my buddy Brad Spielberger of Pro Football Focus. Love PFF. And look, Brad's the salary cap guy over at PFF. We did a deep dive into the Jaguar offseason, things they need to do salary-wise. What about Josh Allen and Calvin Ridley and Trevor Lawrence? Jaguar fans, if you missed that conversation with Brad Spielberger, the salary cap guy for PFF, you can go check it out on 1010XL.com on demand. And again, thank you to my buddy Cecil Shorts, former Jaguar wide receiver. He's with us every week right here on Hacker After Dark. We will be back tomorrow night to close out the week on a Friday beginning at 8 o'clock. Dylan Denmark was your producer tonight. Dylan, great job as always. I'm the Hacker Ryan Green. And again, Jacksonville, thank you for spending part of your Thursday evening with us right here on Hacker After Dark, on 1010XL, and on 92.5 FM. So for all of us here on HAD, have an absolutely terrific remainder of your Thursday evening, and we will talk to you again tomorrow night to close out the week on a Friday beginning at 8 o'clock. Until then, good night, Jacksonville.